0: Hey, are you looking for new and innovative ways to connect with your children? Do you wanna learn how to connect with them through hip hop, social media, and popular culture? Then look no further than my company, The Glad Dad. I'm Dion, a keynote speaker, professional development trainer, and workshop presenter. And I'm also an expert in family engagement. And I wanna show you and everyone around you how to use the latest trends to connect with young people on a much deeper level. A level that will truly break down barriers and create change. By working with the Glad Dad, you'll learn how to break through the noise and meet young people where they are to connect with them on their level. You'll discover new ways to communicate, engage, and create meaningful connections that'll last a lifetime. Whether you're a parent, teacher, or youth leader, I want to teach you the strategies that'll help you connect with your kids like never before. From keynote speeches to professional development training, I got you covered. So don't wait any longer. Visit my website. Dion Chavis.com today to learn more about how I can help you connect with your children through hip-hop social media and popular culture your kids will thank you for it that's right the glad dad helping adults establish positive relationships with young people reach out to me today and let's discuss how I can serve you and your staff now let's get back to the podcast
1: At the time that I created Fathers Incorporated, I was in a, um, what one would describe as a dark space. Um, That's when I was, uh, I had lost a business. Um, I had a extremely hard and failed relationship um, at the time. Um, The mother of my youngest daughter um, and I wasn't seeing eye to eye. Um, And there was a bunch of other turmoil, Things that were going on in my life, and I think I was close to rock bottom.
0: Hey, what's yeah. up? Welcome to the Dad's in the Class podcast, the number one and only podcast for fathers and family engagement. Of course, I'm your host, Dion, also known as the Glad Dad. This is the second installment of the podcast. Had a real great episode last week, so y'all asked me about it. We decided to do it again. Inside of the episode this week, a real good brother. When I say a real good brother, I mean a real good brother uh, who is doing so many great things, who has been doing so many great things in the field of fatherhood and father engagement over the last 20 plus years. It was only right that we have him on the show. Uh, I'm I'm just going to go in and shout him out, man. He's he's the the man, the myth, and the legend. The first time I met him, I remember I asked him when he was going to have me on his, uh, he had a radio show at the time. I I don't know if he, I'm sure he remembers that. Uh, But I I, I walked up to him, I said, hey man, when are you going to put me on your radio show? And he, you know, he said, yeah, just send me an email. Granted, it's been 10, 15 years ago, and I've still never been on the show. But well, here he is, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Mr. Kenneth <laughs> Brasswell. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining right
1: us. I, I thought this was going in the right direction. That took a hard laugh. I'm like, I, I,
0: <laughs> I had to speak my truth. That's all
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're in a car with somebody, they make a quick turn and you have to throw right, your hands right, 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 right that's that's what my mind just did it just threw my hand up on the door keep them nah, man. I, I
0: had to speak my truth man i'll n- I never forget that moment we were actually in delaware at uh the fatherhood conference in delaware steve perry was the keynote and uh i walked up on you had your camera and you were doing some, some uh what we now know as content creation you were of course above uh, above uh ahead of the curve back then but doing a lot of things with video and capturing video and and, and doing all of those things but uh, yeah, man. Glad to have you on the show, man. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you for the work that you do. I'll say that early uh, because the work that you do is 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 so influential, and you have laid the foundation for so many of us who do work in fatherhood and fatherhood engagement and all of those things so just want to give you a flowers before we even get this thing started good
1: brother. thank you i appreciate it man it's an honor to be here bro, And i'm i apologize i know how that looks man i i, I know how that looks i've it's felt all good the where you felt about a lot of different people who be like yeah i got you i got you and they ain't never had me give me either. a call yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so i have my people call your people I mean, I'm saying everything that you said to me goes back to you. I love the way you just continuously grind, bro. You just like whatever is popping, whatever God is putting in your path. You just, you just mow it down. You don't seem like you stop to ask questions about whether or not this is the right thing or that is the right thing. Just keep plowing through. That's going to ultimately get you into a very large and influential space. I love that about you continue to do that.
0: Thank you, good brother. I appreciate it, man. So, the last time you and I were actually together, I want to dive in and start talking about your journey. Uh, you you said something that really made me think. You talked about your journey of moving from uh, Brooklyn, uh, New York to Atlanta, and both of those are areas with very rich histories and really distinct cultures. How have those two cities from your upbringing in New York to your current residence uh, down in the A, how have they shaped your perspective on fatherhood and community engagement?
1: You know, let me first just talk about the energy because I've come to understand um, how those two things benefit me. Both being born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and having to have my motor run really fast, um, and then coming to the South and having the South um, almost force me to slow my motor down. And mm. so, but what I've realized over time, over over the we're going over on ten years being in Atlanta now. Mm -hmm. is that my motor has never slowed down but my focus has slowed down in order for me to see more in the time Mm -hmm. that i spend in what i'm doing and so, you know, in New York, it was fast paced, you had to be here, you had to be there, you had to be in the mix of this person, and you had to be in the mix of that person, and this person had to speak your name, and this person had to speak your name, and then you had to climb right. over this hill and over that hill, and it's interesting because I'm a big uh, power fan, uh, power series from 50 Cent, and um, Force is coming on today at some point. Um, I have mm-hmm. to watch the first episode of the second season, and I was went mm-hmm. back last night to kind of watch three episodes just so I could catch up on it. And Tommy Egan, who's the, the the character name in in this particular episode, had a quote that just struck me, and it happened yesterday. And he said, "Don't you get tired of being at the bottom of the top?" Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Whoa!" Like that thing hit me so hard. It's like. That has always been my struggle, mm. being at the bottom of the top, you know, and where people are thinking that I'm at the top. And it's like, nah, I'm not there yet. And I think it is because God continues to raise my bar. Like every mm. time I get to where I think I'm at the top, he raises it again. And I feel like I'm at the bottom of the top. And it motivates me. So my mind And that motor that New York gave me has allowed me to keep pace with it. But Mm -hmm. this living in the South that says, slow down, savor the moment, the work ain't going nowhere. You are impacting people just because you don't hear it doesn't mean it's not happening. Just continue to do what you're doing. So that Mm -hmm. in and of itself has been that kind of contrast for me. So as a result of that, it has allowed me to really slow down and look at dads. Right. And because in New York, you know, at that level, it was all about policy. It was all about programming and it was all about evidence. It was all about this stuff trying to shape the field. And when I when I came to Atlanta, you know, I had said that I was never going to get back into the direct service business, you know, because I had done that, been there, done that my entire career. I worked for the Urban League. I worked for NAACP Boys and Girls Club. um, You name it. I had my hands in it. And I really wanted to do more high, high systemic work, meaning that I wanted to really impact the system. And when I got down here, God, you know, shifted my space. And now I ended up with a five-year grant providing direct services to fathers. And so mm. now I had to slow down so that I can hear them, so that I can make a connect between that high-level stuff that I do and really what fathers are needing on the ground. And in order to do that, you have to slow down and meet them where they're at. And so Mm -hmm. you have to be empathetic in those spaces as well. And that's Mm -hmm. what the South has done for me.
0: Yeah. Now, you talked about the work that you're doing for fathers with your organization, Fathers Incorporated. Of course, that organization has been just a beacon for responsible fatherhood. Is there a, a moment or incident that you can kind of pinpoint that was the catalyst for the inception of the organization
1: well i mean that was the um entire uh, mode or mood you know for creating it um at the time that i created fathers incorporated i was in a um, what one would describe as a dark space um that's when i was uh, i had lost a business Um, I had a extremely hard and failed relationship um, at the time. Um, The mother of my youngest daughter um, and I wasn't seeing eye to eye. Um, And there was a bunch of other turmoil, things that were going on in my life. And I think I was close to rock bottom. And so at the moment that I wanted to give up, you know, I literally spread out on a coffee table in front of me a bottle of, of, of pills that was in my cabinet. I didn't know what they were. I just poured them out and I just really felt like I was done. Like God didn't have any more usefulness for me. And I, every seemed like everything I had tried, everything I had tried to be, you know, I could never get above, you know, those spaces. And I simply asked God, I was like, listen, Um, And this is how I pray. This is how I I talk to, I pray in conversation with God. You know, mine is not orchestrated. It's not, doesn't have the V's and the Thous and the Therefore's in it. It's (laughs) like, yo, hey, um, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now, but I could tell you this if you don't give me a reason to get off this couch, this is where they'll find me in the morning. Mm. And I sat there and he quietly spoke into my spirit, speak to the hearts of men. Um, you know, and at the time I was in radio, um, like you were in radio, I was doing radio, Mm -hmm. I was doing newspapers, I was doing communication, I was doing all the stuff and I could not make a connection between all of that stuff, which is the stuff I thought I was supposed to be doing and speak to the hearts of men. And -hmm. so I got up and I did what I typically did then. And now when I get into hard spaces, I just let my fingers go. And I let my fingers begin to just putting on paper what's in my mind. And about seven and a half hours after sitting at my computer, I had typed a 15 page perspective of Fathers Incorporated. Mm -hmm. And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, Within Mm -hmm. three Mm -hmm. days, I had a board. Within seven days, I had a website. (laughs) Within 10 days, I was fully incorporated. Um, Within 30 days, I was already speaking. Um, as an executive director of an organization um, that was trying to do the work around responsible fatherhood in front of people who did not know 30 days prior to that, I was ready to take my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Now you, you also work with the national responsible fatherhood Clearinghouse, And of course that's a, a significant initiative under the U S department of health and human services. What's the challenge that you faced in that role uh, that you didn't anticipate and how did you overcome it?
1: Um, it is who I thought you were supposed to be as a CEO. And so it's literally why I don't use the term executive director anymore. I use the term CEO, um, because I think when you use the term executive director, people believe that you're running a program and that you're not running a business when it's not true. When you have a 501c3, the only difference between that tax de- designation and the designation of a corporation and an LLC is the way I file my taxes. And so, you know, I, as the CEO of Fathers Incorporated and running this national responsible fatherhood clearinghouse to which we have four large subcontractors and about 35 to 40 um, employees across the country including 15 employees here in metro Atlanta doing direct service work all of that stuff that I thought that I was going to be doing for the rest of my life and that was like working on the ground working with fathers helping them through their individual and, and small scale um, at least in my in my in my estimation small scale problems but large in their spaces um, I've had to now sit back and be a CEO so I got to think about, employees. I got to think about Mm. audits. I got to think about sustainability. I got to think about fundraising. I got to think about the legacy of Fathers Incorporated, right? What's going to happen to this organization if, God forbid, something happened to me tomorrow? Will this organization still be here to serve the people we're serving today? And so Mm. I've now had to be forced to kind of think from a CEO's perspective And run this thing like a business, but run it like a business within the scope of being empathetic and sympathetic and compassionate about the people that we serve. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you also are an author. You have written uh, probably more books than I can count. One of the books that stands out to me uh, is titled Daddy, There's a Noise Outside. And I think that's a bold title. I remember when you released that book, Um, I remember the like how you prefaced the releasing of that book what was the challenging conversation that you might have had with someone maybe even a child about the theme of the book and what did you learn from that conversation
1: you know the challenging conversation that i had with a child was the very thing that you know encouraged me to write the book um, with the, you know, with the steady encouragement of our good friend David Miller, who was already mm-hmm. writing books and was actually with me when this um, incident occurred. And him and I was in Baltimore City at the time of the Freddie Gray um, unrest. Um, we were there that day when all of the um, Coast Guards and, and tanks and police and we were we were right mm-hmm. on Jefferson Street that day in the epicenter of all that was going on. And mm-hmm. he Uh, was being interviewed by CNN and I happened to just be standing next to him. So uh, being next to him, my wife and my then six-year-old son was watching it. And my son happened to see me on TV. And his question to my wife was, why is daddy there with all of those cops, uh, all of those police? And so you would have to like, so that's a whole conversation in and of itself, which is why a six-year-old boy who I've never spoken to about police, and spoken to him about the history of police and black people, had a concern with seeing his father surrounded by the very things that culture tells him is supposed to impact him and support and, and protect him. Mm-hmm. That's a whole mm-hmm. nother conversation. And so my wife said, <clears throat> wait till daddy comes home, you know, he'll you know tell you what was going on. Fast forward, I get home, I walk in my door, my six year old son runs up on me and he didn't even say hello. He says, dad, why were you there with all of those police? Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what, give me a second. Let me like most men, let me go settle down, put my bags down, you know, get comfortable, come back out. And I'll tell you why I was there. And what I realized um, in the room was that I had an answer but I did not have a six-year-old answer. And what I decided to do when I came out was to talk to him not about why what was going on, but to talk to him about what was going on. And so the difference between those two things, if I talk to him about why, I gotta talk to him about Freddie Gray and I gotta talk to him about police brutality and I gotta talk to him about those things. If I talk about the what, it focused me to solely talk to him about the notion of protest and what it means to protest. My analogy to him was, remember, or do you know how you feel when I tell you that you can't play your Xbox and you go pouting and, and you go in your room and you cross your arms and you roll your eyes? And he goes, yes. I said, that's a form of protest. I said, that is you expressing to me something that you either like or dislike. That's what was happening in Baltimore. Something happened in the city of Baltimore that people didn't like, and they chose to use the form of protests and marching and talking to address their issues with the public. And he got it and he went on about his business. And so I'm telling David Miller the story. And David says, you got to write a children's book about that. I've never heard anybody explain that before like you did. And I was like, man, I don't know how to write no book. And he said, mm-hmm. I send you a template. Um, use the template and then I'll walk you through publishing and getting it and I did it and the rest is history that book is probably is my biggest seller out of every book that I've ever written all of my mm-hmm. books self published I have not been published by an official or, or legitimate le- what people would publishing, say. publishing company have never right. I've always self published mm-hmm. my books um, but every time that something happens in this country that involves a black man around police, the sales of that book go through the roof. Every mm-hmm. time, something, and I can always tell you where it's happening because I could tell you by the addresses that are coming in and the people that are reading. Mm-hmm. The book is actually on a few band bits, a few band oh, wow. lists around the country. Like every now and then I'll get a media alert that says that, Daddy, there's a noise outside, Is on a band list in some county, wow. somewhere, blah, blah, blah. So it's really fun. And the reason that is, is because on the front cover there's a faded silhouette of people marching and one of them Mm -hmm. is holding a black lives matter banner and i always Mm -hmm. believe that that is what stimulates people to not even look in the book and not even read the book in terms of what it is i'm talking about they see that picture and automatically they believe that is something else and so it was his that conversation with him that you know really was the impetus for me beginning to write. And then after that, I just caught the bug and there were so many other stories I wanted to tell with particularly black fathers in the midst of the theme of those conversations are hard to have conversations with children that encouraged me to write the next three. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the books also in your collection is daddy's feeling blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in and, and that book, you address I mean, also basically social, emotional learning, right? And you're talking about emotional depth. Uh, how do you approach sensitive topics uh, like that while keeping um, your young readers engaged? Because, you, you know, Daddy's Feeling Blue is, is something, a book that came out before um, what we're seeing now, this, um, you know, I don't want to call it a trend, but we're seeing mental health being at the forefront of a lot of conversations and rightfully so. Uh, But like I said before, you always find a way to stay ahead of the curve. So, you know, how did you know and how did you uh, feel like this particular topic was going to keep your young readers engaged?
1: You know, the first book had a lot to do with that, because I remember when I wrote that book and I showed it to some people and they were like, no, this is going to go over kids heads. And I'm like, it didn't go over my son's head. And he was Mm -hmm. in kindergarten did not go over his head i said i don't i said one of the issues i think we have as a people is that we underestimate the resiliency and understanding and intelligence of our children that we always mm-hmm. want to dumb things down in a way that we think that this is the only way that they're going to understand how to absorb a tough conversation mm-hmm. and so the way that i wrote daddy Dare's a noise was just I wrote it the same way that I would have a conversation with my six year old son. So when I wrote daddy um, is feeling blue about the mental health or not the mental health, that particular one was about health in general. It was how would I talk to my son about health and how would I explain to my son the importance of health? And how would I help him understand that how he thinks about health as a little boy will impact him as a man? And so that's really what um, Daddy's Feeling Blue was about to really help children understand that they are that they a have a voice, um, Mm -hmm. b that they are extremely influential in his house, in their households. So just his suggestion of asking the question to his mother. Um, What can I do to help and him going to school and actually having a nutrition class and him asking the teacher, would this help my dad? And her saying yes, stimulated him to go home and say to his dad, I got an idea. Let's eat healthy. Let's eat something else. And everybody Mm -hmm. goes along and it kind of shows the empowerment of their voices. The next one, the other one, um, Daddy's Daddy Cannot Cry was really. Um, Two things that happened when I started writing, Daddy, Can I Cry? There were two incidents about six months apart um, where a nine-year-old was murdered. One of them was in Chicago um, that was killed by a drive-by shooting um the other one was i can't remember where the other other one was but they're both in the forwards of my book um the other one was oh the other one was killed in retaliation because of an argument that his brother who was in a gang with who was in a gang had with another gang member and they killed his that. Yeah. nine-year-old son yeah Chicago. I, yeah and i remember mm-hmm. talking to a friend of mine in chicago and i was like man, these kids were nine years old. It's like third grade. I was like, who Mm -hmm. talks to these kids about these traumatic events? And my Mm -hmm. friend was a teacher in the Chicago school system and she says, we don't have these conversations with our kids because they see this so often. We just believe that it doesn't impact them. They just lived it. I'm like, that is absolutely crazy to think that these kinds of incidents don't impact our children. Um, in a way that then impacts them later on in life is just ridiculous to me. And I wanted to kind of write a book that wasn't about a child being murdered, but a child passing away in the mix of them and how they should manage that level of grief, because grief is grief, right? And so one of the things that they say about young children um, with respect to grief is the best way to get them to find a way to cope is to tap into their creative side. And so that could be writing a poem, writing a mm-hmm. book, drawing a picture, something that allows them to be able to illustrate or be creative about their thoughts on paper, as opposed to wanting them to speak the, ther- the therapeutic language. Like, mm-hmm. how do you feel, Tommy. Tommy doesn't know how he feels. This feeling that he has now is equal to a feeling that he has when he wasn't able to go outside and play the day before those feelings are equal. So how do you get him to separate those two emotions to begin to talk about that and know that it's okay to talk about that. And so that was why. So everything that I've written is in that child space. And there's another one I want to do on financial. There's two of them. One that I want to do on. On sex, and the other one that I want to do on substance abuse, um, mm. where they serve as tools so that parents can begin to have these conversations with our children at earlier ages. Mm.
0: Mm. That's good. Now, over your career that's been so extensive, you've done so much good work. How has the definition of responsible fatherhood kind of evolved, especially in the context of societal changes and you know challenges that we face? Like how has that definition of responsible fatherhood kind of changed in your eyes?
1: I think it's less than the definition of responsible fatherhood and more in the simple definition of fatherhood period, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think people still get it wrong. I think they get it wrong less. I think it is evolving. I think that people understand that fathers are critical. I think people understand that um, fathers are different. I think that people understand that um, fathers are uh, eager, ready, and committed to being the lives of their children. I think data is now beginning to show that, and so we put these terms. And so, I'm big on literal definitions. I think that in this space of work, we have to be very clear. In what we say so that we can intentionally point to what it is we're dealing with for instance um, one of the words that I absolutely hate I just have a a, 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 a reaction to this particular word
0: let me get let me guess what it, it is can I guess what it is yeah I want to know if I, if it's the same word is it is it uh, custodial parent
1: Nope it's not that one
0: it's not okay oh man that that's the one for me but go ahead
1: yeah it's fatherless. Mm. I hate that term fatherless. Why? Mm. Because there is absolutely no such thing as a fatherless child. Mm. 100% of all biological children on the face of this earth has a father. The question is never if he exists, it is where he exists. Mm. The challenge that that our children have is as a result of father absence the misplacement of him, not fatherless, the non-existence of him. The reason Mm. that the hole is so impactful on children is because their fathers exist. But when we continue to tell them that they're fatherless, they begin to start believing that my father doesn't exist. Therefore, Mm. they have no idea how to identify the pain. And what the pain looks like and how to deal with the pain because they've been told that he's not here That that pain you're dealing with has absolutely nothing to do with him when it has everything to do with them so you you know and so we the reason we use that term is to justify how we see fathers how mom see fathers how dad sees fathers how society sees fathers but no one takes it into consideration that that word in and of itself damages and impacts children once they begin to absorb that particular word. And so, mm-hmm. what I've begun to do is, like, you know, what we need to lean on is we need to lean on this whole notion of absence, right? Because we know that fathers are there. We see them every day. They may not be in their and they may not be in their children's lives in the way that we need them or we want them to be, but they're definitely there. Right. And so they're not there for a whole host of reasons. And we can spend three or four more shows talking about the host of reasons um, that there are levels of absence. But the bigger reason why we need to lean on absence more than focusing on lists. Um, And this is something that Dr. Ivy Tolson um, said to me. He asked me this question some years ago. I was in D.C. and he said, Kenny, I got a question for you. Um, I'm interested to see what your what your answer is. And he said, what's the difference between a father who has 50% 50 custody of his child and a father who lives with his child but travels 50% of the time? Mm. And he said, absolutely nothing. Both children have an equal level of father absence. Mm. And when he said that, it shifted my whole paradigm in how I think about fathers and how we are supposed to show up because then i began to look at it at its extreme at its extreme right at its extreme is when you have a father who lives with his children who pays all the bills who comes home after work every night doesn't abuse the household doesn't abuse his children doesn't abuse his wife um not violent spiritually spiritually led But leaves nothing emotionally connecting in the lives of his children. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So they spend 10 years, 15 years, 20 years in the same household with this man. And when you ask them to tell me about your father in 20 years, they can tell you nothing more than he worked hard. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. He left nothing. That, too, is a level of father absence. And so I think that it's this father word, fatherhood word that becomes more important to talk about because the responsible word, the responsible fatherhood is literally just a notion of what we want fatherhood to look like, which we want. If you're going to if you're going to engage in fatherhood, we want you to engage responsibly, right? Mm -hmm same word is before motherhood. We just never use it because we make the assumption right. that every mother who mothers is, is responsible. responsible.
0: Not Absolutely. True.
1: But what we want to have happen and we will, what we want to push forward for fathers is that if they're going to do anything in or out, be responsible in doing it. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is important for, uh, for being a responsible father is literally the purpose of this podcast to talk about, father's uh, engagement in their children's education. One of your initiatives, the Million Fathers March is a huge initiative. Um, Was there a particular moment or story that that made you want to begin the the Million Fathers March?
1: So absolutely. So there's a moment that forced me to really think about father engagement in education that happened with my youngest daughter when we was going through family court for custody, Um, not for custody, but for visitation. And then there is what happened, you know, as I was working in the responsible fatherhood field that said, hey, we gotta begin to start focusing on how fathers show up in the educational lives of their children. And what happened with my youngest daughter is when we were negotiating parenting time. And so um, the judge kept saying, that she wanted us to um, do one week on, one week off or every week or every other weekend or something like that. And I said, absolutely not, that's unacceptable. And she says, well, that's what we typically do. And I said, well, what you typically do is wrong. And I said, and let me tell you why it's wrong. I said, "Um, do as a father, do you want me to be in the life of my child? From a health perspective, meaning that should I know and be aware of all her health issues, all her health concerns, those kinds of things, and she said yes. Mm-hmm. I said, "Do you want me to spend time with my daughter from a bonding and spiritual perspective?" Which is on Sundays um, when I go to church, and I would love to take my daughter to church on those Sundays. Shouldn't I have access to 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 build on my daughter's spiritual side? And she says, "Absolutely." And I said, last question. Do you expect that I am supposed to be engaged and responsible in the educational aspects of my child? Mm. And she says, absolutely. And I said, how do I do that when I only see my child once a weekend? Mm. And she said she (laughs) she gave me this look and she said. "Okay," she says, you got my attention. She says what is it that you guys suggest we do? I said, well, we've actually already talked spoken about it. I said we suggest what we call 223. 223 was she has her two days, I have her two days and then I have her the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The next week it flips. She has it mm-hmm. the first two days. I have it the second two days, and then she has a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, right? And then right. on week on the big days, Christmas, Thanksgiving, we flip every year. Mm-hmm. Mother's mm-hmm. Day and Father's Day. If it happens to be on either one of our days, we flip so that she mm-hmm. so that she be with mom or dad, and then we're functioning that way. And she says that has never. She goes, she goes. I've never heard that before. Let's try it. My daughter was two and a half years old when the judge allowed us to do that. She is about to turn 24 and we had that in place the entire time. And the cool thing about it is we both had um, rooms in our homes for her. Our Mm -hmm. daughter was never a bag child. She didn't carry Mm -hmm. a bag from here to there, here to here. When she came to my home, it was her house. And mm-hmm. everything was if you walked in my house, you thought she lived there. When you went mm-hmm. to her mother's house, it was the same exact thing. She never moved the bag from house to house. She just only carried her book bag. She had whatever her clothes transferred, obviously, mm-hmm. because she was going back and forth. But mm-hmm. outside of that, um, she was really locked in but to your question about the education component because i had a two days a week on some weeks and i had a three days a week on other weeks i was able to go in and meet her teachers i was able to go into the school i dropped off at school on most days i knew what homework she struggled with i knew what she was learning i knew everything i i we both had an equal impact on her educational life, which now that she's 24 years old, we can clearly see both of our influences on how Mm -hmm. she learns and how she articulates and how she reasons as a result of that. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. In terms of, you know, where you were um, being in your daughter's life and being a part of her education, was there ever a time that you felt like you were treated less than, Uh, Because you were an active father, because you were trying to make a difference, because you were trying to be there in the schools. And, you know, a lot of times in these spaces when fathers are trying to do uh, what they're supposed to do and they're trying to be engaged and they're trying to do all of those things, they can be there can be some pushback. Did you ever receive any sort of, you know, just inkling that there was someone who wasn't really feeling the work that you were trying to put in for your own family, for your own daughter?
1: You know, what's interesting because uh, (laughs) when her mother and I was actually going, when we were having, when we was in our going through phase, um, one of the things I said to her was, I will never give you a bad daddy, baby daddy story. You Mm -hmm. will never be able to go to your friends with a bad baby daddy story. And some years later, her and I were having a conversation and she said, She goes, you know, I never forgot when you said that. She goes, when you said that to me, I was so hot and furious with you. She says, and now I don't even know why I was mad. She says, but you know what? Because you did that, what that disallowed me to do was to be around my girlfriends and chime in on conversation about men in the way that they were having conversations about men and their dads. Mm-hmm. And so there were times where she would be in the midst of her girlfriends and they would be, you know, talking about the fathers of their children in a negative way and blah, blah, blah. And she said they would always say to her, Shani doesn't have that problem because she's got a good baby daddy. Mm-hmm. And I said, was that weird? And she's go, absolutely. She goes because it mm-hmm. was never. And so it really wasn't me that was ever uncomfortable. It was always as a result of my engagement, at least in those times where she was in the mix of a lot of her girlfriends, made her uncomfortable. It made people uncomfortable because they could not engage in that narrative. For me, mm-hmm. it was you know slight things that as a result of our relationship and as a result of how we raised our children, it was at those times that we went to a parent-teacher conference and they would turn to her and say, well, tell me about X, Y, and Z. And he would say, I don't know, ask him. He goes, he spends more time with blah, blah, blah than that. And then they would, and then you could see that feel like, oh. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. So in a weird, I say weird way, damn, but it really wasn't a weird way. In a way, she became one of my biggest advocates for being mm-hmm. a father in the life of my child so she stood in for me whenever we were in the midst of someone who looked at me a certain way or said something in a certain way she would always be the corrector um, in that conversation and as a result of that i know i'm an, I, I know that our relation i i know that our relationship is somewhat of an anomaly but what i learned over time is that the way we function in our relationship wasn't rare it was mm-hmm. not rare. I ran across many people still run across people who co-parent in a way that allowed them to be able to live their separate lives, but at the same time mm-hmm. function in their combined lives.
0: Yeah. Now, there's there's some dads out there who feel like, you know, engaging in their child's education isn't important or that's the teacher's job. What would you say to someone, to a father right now, who has a child, uh, they might be, you know, they're in the child's life, but they aren't necessarily engaging in the child's education. What would you say to that father to give him a push that he needs to uh, get engaged and and, and start participating in his child's education?
1: Two things. Um, Education starts at home. Mm -hmm. And so there are things that you can do that become activity driven exercises that allow your children to learn in the same way that they learn in the classroom. Um, You have to be astute in a way to where you are clear about what she is, what he or she is learning at their own age level, which means you got to be involved in their schools. Um, how do you know what your child is learning or not learning if you're not helping them with homework, homework, and you're not mm-hmm. watching what's going on? So being intimately engaged in the life of your child. And so most people believe that the learning happens in the classroom, the guiding happens in the classroom, the learning happens at home. Mm-hmm. Right. The second thing is you can do this. Like, don't get intimidated. There's workout. There's people out here that can simplify like my son's math like i'm the writer in my life i'm the english person in my family my wife the common core
0: family. math different the common core math is different it's, it's a whole different <laughs> ball game man I to, listen i told my daughter and i told my daughter when she got to about the seventh grade i said look man i'm not the one you want to ask about this you, you out, go to google you you got a calculator you got all of these tools sometimes the answer is even in the back of the book but Absolutely. you do not want to ask me because I can't help you. If I'm, if you get me to help you, you can get an F. So yeah,
1: yeah, it's yeah, on you. Yeah, you yeah. can
0: ask, but your answer ain't going to be right.
1: Yeah. Know your limits. Um, And then I, there was one other thing. And the other thing is to encourage curiosity hmm. because curiosity is the thing that actually stimulates individuals to wanting to learn. Right? So, Everything that my children has ever gone through in school, whether it was English, whether it was math, whether it was science, I've always tried to find a way to connect those things to real life. right? And so with my with my son, when he was younger and he was kind of in these sports. I used to always talk to him about angles. I used to always say, "Not you know, mathematically, an angle is an angle. So if a ball is coming through at this thing, you want an angle." And so he picked it up. And now, when I watch him play basketball, I watch him play out in his head that there's these things that I've learned in math about curves, and that I've learned mm-hmm. about you know the stats and what the stats are saying, and those kinds of things that now make sense. And now my math makes sense to me because my math is now attached to something real. Right. And so, or when we're driving in the car and you know, it would be a really bad storm. And I would say, he would say, Oh, this is a tornado. And I was like, that's not a tornado. I was like, this is not a tornado. If there was a tornado, you would see X, Y, and Z. And he was like, how do you know that? And I was like, well, I learned it in school. I said, but I always was curious about what was going on when I saw what was going on. So if there was hail falling down, I wanted to know what's that about? Like, how does hail fall in the middle of the summertime on this on the street? Like, what what, what is that about? And so and so they have all just become curious about life, about what's around them. I just told my nephew the other day we were. Um, he's into film now, and he's. Uh, just finished the internship and learning how to do documentaries. And so I got excited because I'm in the film and content. And I want now my nephew's with me. I want them with me and I want right. to teach him. I want to do all these right. things. So my son, yeah, my son's a basketball player. And I'm like, yo, let's document KJ's life. Let's like take pictures. Mm-hmm. Let's take some video. Let's put some things together. And last week he had his camera on his, in his hands. The game's going on, but he's got his cell phone on his mm-hmm. other leg watching YouTube. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I said to him like, "Dude, like, I thought you was my wingman this weekend. I thought you mm-hmm. was going to take like video." He's like, "Oh, I'm 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 taking video." I was like, "How you taking video and you on your cell phone? And and you watching YouTube." I don't, and he caught an attitude about it, right? And so finally I said to him, I said, "Listen." I said, "This is not an argument. I just want to say this to you and I just want you to absorb what I'm saying."
0: Mhm.
1: What I'd like to see happen with you is that things that happen outside of your phone become more interesting than the things that are happening in your phone. Inside. Right, right. The things in your phone, the things that you're looking at, can't be more interesting to you than the things you create in your own life. Hmm. And he just, he he, good. Good. he, 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 heard me, but he didn't hurt me. He was in his feelings and blah. Cause he thought I was arguing with him and criticizing him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, nah, I was like, listen, when I come into the, I'm, I'm his dad. I said, when I come to your graduation, you know where my phone goes in my pocket. You know right. why? Because at that moment, there's nothing happening on my phone. That's more important mm-hmm. than what's happening in my face. Right. Right? And so if you are a father working with your children, it is really connecting their learning with real life. Right. And Mm -hmm. really helping them understand the importance of being curious about everything, because once Mm -hmm. they become curious, they seek education, they seek knowledge, they seek wisdom. But if they're not curious about anything, they're just going along with the flow. They're never curious about anything and they never feel the need to learn. Mm,
0: that's good teaching. That's real good teaching. Uh, lastly, I'm not gonna hold you too long. I just want to ask, given your uh, your vast experience, your insights, if you could change one policy or societal, societal norm to better support fathers, what would it be?
1: You know, the state of Baltimore, um, under newly elected Governor Wes Moore, just passed a law in the state of Maryland called the Child Relocation. I think it's the Child Relocation Act. I think that's what it's called. But the premise of the law, uh, which Frank Malone and and, and um, David David I can't think of David's last name and and Senator Jill um jill i'm just forgetting everybody's name helped pass this law and what it does is it places a sanction on a custodial parent that abruptly moves their child mm. when the custodial mm-hmm. parent is paying child support without notice mm. And so it is meant to deter individuals from just picking up their kids and disappearing and moving. And they just passed this law. A lot of people don't know it just passed about six months ago. Listen, when Frank sent me that thing and I was reading it, my heart jumped out of my freaking chest. I was like, finally someone is looking at these little nuanced things that, changes the condition on how people should co-parent outside of their personal feelings and that no one has possession over children Mm
0: -hmm. they
1: have Mm -hmm. uh, they have the custodial responsibility but they don't have possession you can't just pick up a child and move when you feel like it Because you want to, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. especially when the state has forced, not forced them, but have them in within an infrastructure that forces them to pay a certain amount of money every month. And they are held to primarily fatherhood or or non-custodial responsibilities that you don't get to change the paradigm of what that is by taking it, un- under, taking it under your own control for breaking that covenant and moving away. And this person still having the obligation of doing what it is they're supposed to do. Because trust me, if a, if someone did that and the father stopped paying child support, which one do you think would happen first? Them bringing her back to Maryland or them putting him in jail for not paying child support?
0: He locked up like Akon.
1: He locked up. And so that thing, if I told them, I said, this has gotta be national. That has to be national. Um, it would solve a lot of problems. It would put an ease on the burden of, of um, interstate child support issues where mm-hmm. people are just moving around and moving around when they feel like moving around. If states and the nation said, no, if you have gone through the process Or bringing the non custodial parent to court to get child support, then part of the obligation is to make sure the very thing that he's paying child support, he has access to. Right. That you don't get to just pick that up and go somewhere. Man, if that could become state, if that can become nationwide, it it would reset the table. And you know what? Mm. The crazy thing is it wouldn't take anything away from mom. Because that's always the issue. The issue is, like, if you do something for dads, you're taking things away from moms. Where, in reality, moms and dads really don't have anything to do with the equation. The question is, what is to the benefit of the child? Of the child, right. Right? Right. And so that is a policy that if that thing could become national, it would be a table resetter and a game changer. Mm. Mm. And it wouldn't hurt anybody if it happened.
0: Yeah. That um, that's dope. I think I think like you said that should be something that's national. It would curve a lot of uh, a lot of the things that we see where people feel like just because they you know want to get a fresh start, even though they've got two kids and the dad is in the life of the children, but you know that they they may not be getting along with the dad, or so they say. I'm just going. I'm gonna pick up and I'm gonna move to Atlanta. I'm moving to Charlotte. And you you know you see the kids and that no you can't do that. You can't do that. Uh, so i agree i think that would be a great uh thing to put in place nationally uh, so we're gonna close right here great brother i appreciate you this has been an excellent conversation an excellent uh dialogue talk to us about your uh, projects that you got coming up anything that the people should know about any any ways that we can support you uh, and your movement just let us know
1: absolutely you know right now we're 10 toe deep in this million fathers march effort that takes place september 15th which is the third friday of september and um it's moving this thing is moving we are not even into the month of september we are now in 135 cities in 33 states with a potential impact of over 72,000 dads across the country. And so if you have um, or if you want information on how to get your school involved, just simply go to MillionFathers.March uh, ooh, millionfathers.march.com, sign your school up, encourage your school to do some fatherhood activity on the 15th of September so that we can raise the awareness of the importance of making sure that fathers are engaged in the educational lives of their children and what's up shout out to my brother um, kelly little what's going on sir
0: what's up to the good brother kelly little checking in definitely appreciate that love great brother uh so yeah thank you all for tuning in to another phenomenal episodes of dads in the class podcast where we talk about the importance of fathers being engaged in the education of their children we're coming right back next week for an entirely new episode i thank kenny braswell Uh, Be sure to follow him on all social media platforms. Pick up his books. He's doing great work. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, are you looking for new and innovative ways to connect with your children? Do you want to learn how to connect with them through hip hop, social media and popular culture? Then look no further than my company, The Glad Dad. I'm Dion, a keynote speaker, professional development trainer and workshop presenter. And I'm also an expert in family engagement. And I wanna show you and everyone around you how to use the latest trends to connect with young people on a much deeper level, a level that will truly break down barriers and create change. By working with the Glad Dad, you'll learn how to break through the noise and meet young people where they are to connect with them on their level. You'll discover new ways to communicate, engage, and create meaningful connections that'll last a lifetime. Whether you're a parent, teacher, or youth leader, I wanna teach you the strategies that'll help you connect with your kids like never before. From keynote speeches to professional development training, I got you covered. So don't wait any longer. Visit my website, DionChavis.com today to learn more about how I can help you connect with your children through hip hop, social media, and popular culture. Your kids will thank you for it. That's right. The Glad Dad, helping adults establish positive relationships with young people. Reach out to me today and let's discuss how I can serve you and your staff. Now let's get back to the podcast.